First Peter chapter 5. And looking to verses 10 and 11 of 1 Peter 5, I want to preach a message entitled, Peter's Pastoral Prayer. Peter's Pastoral Prayer for Suffering Believers. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 10, Peter says, But the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want you to notice here at the beginning of my sermon the way in which Peter shepherds Christ's suffering sheep through the assorted words of this letter. And specifically, I want you to to observe the perpetual intermingling of straightforward pastoral exhortations and warnings with sincere pastoral encouragements and reassurances. In fact, I would encourage you sometime to read the entirety of of the epistle of 1 Peter in one sitting and take careful notice of how Peter goes back and forth from speaking words of comfort to words of challenge, from inspiring God's people to inciting God's people, from understanding their struggles that they are in to not giving them any excuse to become spiritually sloppy. You see, Peter could have coddled these suffering believers merely with repetitive statements of comfort and encouragement, but that is not what we find. Peter could have reprimanded these suffering believers with nothing but corrective warnings and exhortations, but that is not what we find either. What we find through the progression of Peter's letters is a perfect harmony of heart-piercing exhortations that are fused with heart-lifting encouragements. I would like to pause here and note that all pastoral preaching needs to prayerfully endeavor to maintain a strong balance of both teaching elements. All pastoral counsel and all public preaching needs a prudent mixture of straightforward exhortation And warning, as well as words of encouragement and comfort, because it is sanctioned by God and thus is exactly what the believer needs. If you will study the teaching and preaching of the prophets, if you will examine the teaching manners of Jesus, if you will observe what the apostles wrote in their epistles, you will find that each one carefully unites the element of encouragement and comfort with the element of correction and exhortation among all that they say, and particularly during times of suffering. So this means that God knew that we need a balance of both spiritual elements. We need doctrinal truth, and we need practical encouragements. We need cheerful reminders, and we need corrective reprimands. 
We need reassurances that God can help us, and we need passionate calls toward repentance of sin. And I know as a gospel minister that it's easy to focus on one element over the other, but Christ's sheep need both. Listen, there are many popular TV and radio preachers that you know of who only focus on the encouragement side. I won't name names, but they're out there and they rarely preach a message that includes cutting, challenging, warning, reproving, calling people to repentance. And then on the flip side, there are many YouTube preachers and zealous pastors who only focus on the reproving, warning side. They rarely say anything meant to comfort and encourage Christ's sheep. So what I am saying is, if we are going to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, we need a well-balanced diet of straightforward commands and stimulating comforts. And by the way, this is the only way we are going to help those around us on a personal level as they fight the good fight of faith, as they are dealing with their sufferings. We're not going to help others by coddling them. We're not going to help others by taking them in hand and say, Oh, you poor thing. You have it so bad. You have every reason to focus on yourself at this time and slow down spiritually. Nor are we going to help others if we only beat them down. If we come to them and say, You know what you need to do? You need to swallow your excuses and get right with God like a drill sergeant in the military. No, we need both. We need to say, listen, God can help you. Christ knows what it is to suffer, but you need to take responsibility of your actions. You need to do what God has commanded you to do with no excuses given. Listen, God knows your situation. God has sovereignly arranged that you would be molded into the likeness of Jesus Christ through your trials. God is able to help you grow for good in the midst of the struggle. But you better not give way to the devil. You better keep a close watch over your heart. You better strive to keep from bitterness, complaining, and murmuring. Do you see the balance? I'll let you in on a little secret. I try to mimic my pastoral ministry, my preaching ministry, after this very method. In the scheduling of what to preach and how to preach throughout the week, I'm constantly asking myself, how can I take this text and encourage? How can I take this text and challenge? How can I take this text and warn? I'm constantly weighing over in my mind, how can I practice 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all longsuffering, while at the same time encourage those who are weak, wounded, and weary. How can I comfort the afflicted and how can I afflict the comfortable? There's the balance. In every church service, there are people who are afflicted and downcast. How can I comfort them while at the same time there are people who are comfortable, casually walking about in their Christian life, careless about the spiritual war, how can I flick them? How can I poke them in the eye, spiritually speaking? 
How can I provoke them unto love and good works? We need a balance. And we have such a balance, I hope. You've seen in the course of our services throughout the week, in our Sunday school hour, typically we have a time of teaching, a time of instruction, a time of diving into various Bible doctrines. In the 11 o'clock hour in our main service, my aim is to go through the scriptures in an expository sense and through that exhort, prod, challenge, confront, and to call on others to know Christ and to walk with Him more intimately. Currently in our Sunday evening services, in our discernment series, my aim is to provoke, my aim is to examine various teachings and church practices by the light of Scripture. My aim is to warn of the dangers of cherishing man's tradition over the truth of God's Word. And then in our midweek service on Wednesday nights, as we move through the book of Psalms, my pastoral aim is to comfort and encourage. In the midst of David and the psalmist dealing with their changing circumstances, as they are crying out to God in the midst of their trials and troubles, I want to take those truths and work them into the fabric of our own circumstances. So every week, there's a time of instruction, there's a time of exhortation, there's a time of warning, a time of examination, and then there's a time of encouragement and comfort. So we have a full course meal. We have steak, potatoes, fruits and vegetables, and a salad. This is why I encourage others, especially church members, to strive to be here for every service. Man shall not live by salad alone. Man shall not live by meat alone. I don't want to talk about your meat-only diets. Man needs a whole course meal. Remember the food pyramid that you were taught growing up? We need that spiritually speaking. We need comfort and encouragement, but we also need reproof and warning and correction. So if you only come to one service, you're only going to get one part of the meal. If you only come to one service, you're only going to get a skewed view of my preaching. You're either going to think that I'm a stern, hard-nosed preacher who's against everything, or you're going to think that I'm a broken record who's constantly talking about discouragement, depression, and the need to trust God in the midst of trying circumstances. Depending on how often you come, what service you come to, what's being preached at the time, you might only get one part of the many parts that you need to live a balanced Christian life. So what I am showing from Peter's written letter here is that we need the full course of Christian preaching and teaching. We need comfort and encouragement, yes. But we also need our toes stepped on from time to time. We need the sword of the Spirit to pierce our heart. We need it to be a mirror that shows us our imperfection so that we will run to Christ and find forgiveness in Him. So back to our text. Here is Peter writing to believers who've been scattered across the ancient world because of persecution. Peter has been reminding them from chapter 1 of the lively hope that Christ has given them through the new birth. 
Peter has been seeking to encourage their hearts in the Lord by provoking them not to forget that Christ knows what it is to suffer, for Christ suffered for our souls. In the midst of such encouragement, Peter doesn't coddle. He doesn't give them excuses for not obeying God in the midst of their suffering. On the contrary, we find that he is calling them to gird up the loins of their mind, to submit to their earthly authorities, to love the unlovable, to forsake sin, to follow after righteousness, and to be watchful of the enemy's attacks. You see, Peter goes from comforting to encouraging. From one verse to another, from one chapter to another, from encouraging to warning. From provoking unleavened good works to prodding them to trust God in the midst of their pain. And here in the final part of this letter, as he draws to conclusion, notice he counsels them to do everything they can to be watchful over their hearts and to be watchful over the attacks of the wicked one. And then in verse 10, Peter endeavors to encourage them with an uplifting pastoral prayer. So he says, beware of pride. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. And then warning, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, is walking about seeking whom he may devour. Be aware of these things. We are in a war. He's exhorting. He's poking. He's pressing. He's prodding. He's expecting. And now he turns to a comforting, uplifting pastoral prayer. And in the consideration of our first point, I want us to recognize the essence of Peter's pastoral prayer, the essence of Peter's prayer. What is it that Peter desires of these people who are hurting, who are dealing with injustices, who are being fiercely hunted by the devil who's as a roaring lion? Think about it. How does this spiritual shepherd pray for God's sheep in the midst of their fiery trials? Well, notice he says that he prays that the God of all grace would perfect them, establish them, strengthen them, and cause them to be more secure in their faith. And by way of breaking this prayer of Peter's down and considering it in the light of what he could have prayed for them, But he did not. Let me highlight the essence of the prayer by summarizing it in three different ways. First, I want to point out that the essence of Peter's prayer focuses on the believer's personal holiness, not the believer's personal happiness. Let me say it again. The essence of Peter's prayer focuses on the believer's personal holiness not their personal happiness. Of all the things that Peter desires for these scattered saints who are suffering, you will notice that he mentions absolutely nothing of having their best life now. He mentions absolutely nothing about a purpose-driven life in which every day feels like a Friday. 
of all the things that Peter brings to the ears of God for these burdened believers, we do not find any requests that are centered around their temporal feelings. He doesn't pray that their life would be like a warm, happy, cheesy Hallmark movie. He doesn't pray that their life would be as happy as they make it seem as on Facebook. He doesn't pray that their days will be merry and bright and all their Christmases be white. He doesn't ask God for everyone to be nice to them. He doesn't rush the throne of grace begging God to give them everything that they want in life like some celestial Santa Claus. Of all the things he desires for these people, he desires that they would, through their sufferings, be weaned from the sinful influences of the world and would do that which he commanded them to do in 1 Peter 1.15. You remember what Peter said in 1 Peter 1.15. Peter, over there, exhorts God's people in the midst of their sufferings to be holy in all manner of their behavior. So now he's placing that command in a prayer request. He's commanded them to be holy. Now he's praying to God that God, through their sufferings, would make them holy. And this is what it means to be perfected. This is what it means to be established, strengthened, and settled. Peter is more concerned for their relational holiness toward God and men above their temporal happiness that is rooted in their changing circumstances. You see, happiness is rooted in circumstance. Joy is rooted in Christ. And one of the reasons we know that this is true is because Peter does not pray that their sufferings might be taken from them. Peter could have prayed, God, get them out of their trouble. God, in the valley of the shadow of death that they are in, let it disappear at once. Peter doesn't pray that. What does he pray? He prays that God would use their sufferings to perfect His sanctifying work in them and through them. He prays that through the fierceness of their fiery trials, that God would purge them so that they could be as gold. What is the essence of Peter's prayer? First, the essence of Peter's prayer focuses on the believer's personal holiness, not the believer's personal happiness. Now, second, the essence of Peter's prayer focuses on the believer's spiritual maturity, not their physical prosperity. Let me say it once more for those who've been influenced by the thinking of popular health, wealth, and prosperity speakers on TBN. Namely, Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn, Joyce Meyer, Kenneth Copeland, Paula White, Joseph Prince. The essence of Peter's prayer here focuses on the believer's spiritual maturity, not their physical prosperity. Peter says, but the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, 
make you what? Prosperous? Make you a millionaire? Make you among the Fortune 500 most successful businesses? No. Make you perfect, established, strengthened, and settled. Peter does not say, may the God of all grace increase your bank account. He does not say, may the God of all grace keep you from ever getting sick again. Are you listening? I fear even among our Baptist circles, we've been tainted by this name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, health, wealth and prosperity philosophy. There are many sincere believers who attend Baptist churches who genuinely believe that to be well off financially means that you are right with God and to be poor means that you are lacking faith. And I know many Christians whose prayers for others focus primarily around so-and-so getting a job, so-and-so getting a promotion, so-and-so getting a house, so-and-so getting a raise, so-and-so passing an examination, so-and-so winning a 5K race, enjoying their vacation, their favorite sports team winning, and so forth. We're so earthly-minded. We're too absorbed in that which is physical and temporal. Not only in our living, but in our praying. But not Peter. As Peter prays for these believers, we find that the focus of his prayer for them is their spiritual maturity, not their physical prosperity. As he runs to the throne of grace, he's asking God to help these sheep to become strengthened, spiritually strengthened through their weaknesses. Remember Paul? Paul said when he is weak, then is he strong. Why? Because it's in his weakness that the power of Christ rests upon him. Peter's asking God to help them, these believers, be calm in the midst of their chaotic circumstances so that they will know God's perfect peace in the midst of their problems. He's asking that God would perfect them, establish them, strengthen, settle them as it relates to their spiritual development. It's like a tree that is blown by the fierceness of the wind. A tree is strengthened in its roots when the wind blows hard. And that's what Peter is praying. He's praying a prayer of horticulture here. May your roots be deepened in the sufficiency of Christ's word as the storms of persecution blow across your life. And then you will notice third that the essence of Peter's prayer focuses on God's people knowing Christ, not the destruction of their enemies. Look at it again. Peter does not pray, God, I ask that you will cause the unjust masters of these Christian servants to die of a heart attack. Peter does not pray, God, I pray that you will allow the unsaved husband who's living like a couch potato, who is married to the Christian wife, to get into a car accident so he will wake up regarding what he needs to do. Interestingly enough, the focus of Peter's prayer is primarily 
focused on believers, not unbelievers. And I'm convinced that this is a truth that we need to sincerely think about as it relates to our own life. Now, don't lose me here. This is for us. How does Peter pray? Where is his attention given? In this epistle, we do not find him praying an evangelistic prayer for the lost. And that's not because Peter is careless about the souls of men. Peter does care for the lost and dying world, but his focus in prayer are Christians. He is praying a sanctifying prayer for God's sheep. Why? Think about it. Well, could it be that perhaps unbelievers are not coming to faith in Christ because of the lives of believers and the testimony of the church? Could it be that maybe, just maybe, our message is falling on deaf ears because of our sinful compromises, our spiritual fickleness, our hypocrisy, and our lack of love for Christ? I'm just asking a question here. It's something that we need to consider. Why are we not seeing the lost world come to Christ They have easy access to the Bible. There are sermons online, sermons on the radio. In fact, just this year, we as a church sent 10,000 Gospel of Johns to the mailboxes of everyone in Yucca Valley. Our community is actively involved in knowing what is true and right. So what's the problem? Why don't we see people curious about the message of Christ. Well, perhaps, perhaps there's a disconnect between what we say and how we live. Perhaps we are the reason. So what's going to change that? Well, the only thing that will change how the world views us is our personal knowledge of Christ. And I'm not talking about an intellectual knowledge that rests in the head. I'm talking about a personal, intimate knowledge that rests in the heart. Do you see that? This is what Peter is praying for those who are suffering. He's praying that their heart would be fixed upon the rock in the midst of their storms. He is praying that their union with Christ might be strong. He is praying that they would be found faithful, that they would be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. He's praying that their affections would be set on things above, not on things of the earth. He is praying that they would seek first the kingdom of God and Christ's righteousness. You see, Peter's praying that they would hunger and thirst after God like the deer pants after the water brooks. Why does Peter pray this for believers? Because he knows that Christ has commanded God's people to be the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savor, Wherewith shall it be salted? It is good for nothing but to be cast into the streets and to be trodden by the foot of men. God's church is to be God's lighthouse in this dark world. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. But if our light is covered, if we disperse one from another, if we hide our brightness under a bushel, the world will not see. 
So you see where his focus is? His focus is on the church. His focus is on those who profess the name of Christ. We will only win the world for Christ when we live for Christ. Come on, help me out here. We have this disconnect. Well, I go to church, I worship God in one hour on Sunday morning, but that's it. I don't live for Christ the rest of the world, for the rest of the week. We come into the service, we come into the church house, and we're all smiles, and we're all warm and welcome, but then we go into the world and we act nasty and bitter and frustrated and angry as if God doesn't exist. How's that going to help the world? How's that going to help other believers? Peter is praying that God's people would be strengthened in their faith because only in that strengthening will people see a difference in our life. It's one thing for people to read their Bibles. It's another thing to read the lives of other Christians and to see, is this really true or not? Now, the Bible is always true. But there can be a cause for pointing fingers at, you say the Bible's true, but you don't act like it's true. Why should I come to your church? Why should I want that message? We need to catch this church. Some of you are more upset with how the lost world lives than how the Christian world lives. You get all out of sorts. Hearing news articles about the lost world acting like lost world. Well, newsflash, lost people are going to act like lost people. Hello. They're going to act like dead men. Like there's no fear of God before their eyes. Deal with it. That's what these believers are dealing with. And can I just help us before we get to the next election? The Democrats aren't going to change how Democrats act. Deal with it. Our problem is not the Democrats. Help me out. Come on. That's what. Oh. Focus on your own heart. So our nation's unraveling at the seams. Let's show this world that we have a God who's over all. That's the context of 1 Peter. Peter's telling them, you need to submit to earthly authority. But earthly authority is corrupt. From the home to the workplace to the nation, yes. But Christ is with us. Christ can help us. And you ought to do what's right even in the midst of that. You have no excuse. What does Peter pray for them? That their eyes would be laser focused on Christ. That they would be given fully to the doing of His will. The essence of Peter's prayer focuses on God's people knowing Christ and truly knowing Him, not the destruction of their enemies. And by the way, this is the same manner of prayer the apostle prays for the churches throughout his epistles. Paul prays that they would be strengthened with might in the inner man. He prays that they would know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. He asks God to fill them with the fullness of His Spirit. His focus is on their relationship with God not the world and not their temporal circumstances. So I'm submitting to you that if we are going to reach the world for Christ, if we are going to live a God-honoring life, this is how we must pray for ourselves and for one another. How do you pray for your brother and sister in Christ? Help me out, Brother Short, if you're listening. How are we ought to pray for Brother Short? 
This is reality. Let's put it in his context. All right, he doesn't mind if I pick on him. He picks on everybody else nine times more, right? So one, one instance not going to hurt him. How should we pray? God, get him out of the hospital. Well, yes, if it be according to God's will. But if somebody else is praying for a lost doctor or nurse that works there, and they're praying for some Christian to go witness to that doctor or nurse. Lord, help Brother Short to be a light and a testimony for Christ in the midst of his suffering. We, we know our human tendencies to become doubtful and bitter and to complain, Lord, help him to be settled and strengthened and kept in your love. Help him to identify with the sufferings of his Savior, Jesus Christ, there in the midst of that room. We don't know the purposes of God, but somehow, some way, Lord, you've led him there that week, this week now, for a reason. How do we pray that he would not be served bad food all week? Well, yeah, we could pray that too. We pray that God's word would be his meat, his strength, his comfort. See, we need to change the way we pray in our prayer meetings. Help so-and-so's stub toe. Maybe help them not to cuss when they stub their toe. Help them be a testimony to their neighbors. Help them not to scream, buddy, murder. Right? What shall it profit a man if he escapes the hospital, but he doesn't learn any spiritual truth through that experience? And the same way goes through difficulty in marriage. Difficulty with children, family relationships. This is the context of 1 Peter. Unjust boss, employer. What are you going to learn? Well, just jump to the next job where there's another unjust employer and another unjust employee. No, how do you respond to that? How can you be a witness in the midst of that? Now, having examined the essence of Peter's prayer... Turning to our second main point, I want us to reflect upon the example of Peter's life. I can't help but consider this week after week after week. You see, it's one thing to consider Peter's words. It's another thing to consider his words in the life of his testimony. It's one thing to hear a sermon. It's another thing to see a sermon. It's one thing to hear a gospel minister preach truth to a group of people. It's quite another thing to appreciate that truth that he preaches if such truths are reality in the pastor's life, right? So Peter prays, and he prays that God would strengthen these believers, establish them, settle them in the faith. He prays that they would grow in holiness, that they would grow in maturity, that they would grow in their love for Christ in the midst of their heartaches and losses. Now, let's take this and zoom out. Let's step back, examining the whole of Peter's life, all right? As we do so, I want you to think about the various trials and sufferings that Peter endured. From the time that he was first called by Jesus to the time that he pens this letter. Think of the occasions of suffering that were, number one, self-afflicted, and number two, caused by others. All right? Well, in the Gospels of Mark and Luke, what do we read? We read 
of the occasion of Peter's mother-in-law laying sick of a fever. Now, for some people, they wouldn't care if their mother-in-law had a fever, but Peter did. He was troubled by it. He was bothered. Surely this would have caused great grief to the family, seeing a loved one hurting so much. In the Gospels, we read of Peter failing in his faith on the waters of Galilee. Yes, he stepped out of the boat, but he got his eyes off of Christ. He began to sink, and Jesus reproved him for his lack of faith. In the Gospels, we read of Peter being rebuked by Christ, not just once, but on several occasions. We read of Peter tarnishing his Christian testimony with those who came to arrest Jesus as he sought to kill Malchus. We read of Peter denying Christ three times. We read of Peter being so discouraged that he went back to his earthly occupation of fishing. He was done being a disciple. He wanted to go back to fish because fish don't hurt people. Think about these occasions. Think about the emotions Peter had to wrestle with. Think about the temptations of the evil one that were being hurled at him. Think about the sufferings that he brought upon himself. And then amidst all this, in the Gospels we read that Peter not only was suffering these things because of failures of his, Peter, as he was following Christ, as he was helping the community, saw people dying of disease. He saw parents losing their children. He saw false teachers, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes leading others astray. And greatest of all, Peter saw his Savior, his close friend, his spiritual mentor, be crucified as a common criminal. And then through the book of Acts, what do we read? We read that Peter was commanded not to teach in the name of Jesus. We read of Peter being beaten for disobeying such a command. Then we read of Peter having to confront Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit That grieved his heart. Sin is in the church, and it looks like now the church is going backwards in their hypocrisies. And then Peter watched as God's people were being persecuted by Saul and his cohorts. Peter witnessed Stephen and James, the brother of John, becoming martyrs of the faith. These were deacons. These were fellow servants in Christ dying. And then Peter is hunted by King Herod and cast in jail. Not only that, Peter is then confronted and rebuked by the Apostle Paul, a new convert, a new apostle, as Peter's walking contrary to the message of the gospel. Talk about humbling experience. Do you think Peter knows anything about trials and troubles and heartaches and injustices and losses and personal failures, attacks from the evil one? Now, having called these occasions to mind, I want you to think of Peter's progression of faith in the midst of all of his failings and sufferings. From the time that he was first called to follow Christ to what we read in the Acts of the Apostles to this wise, mature, pastoral prayer that he prays. Do we find that Peter has become established in his faith? Do we find a maturing process? Do we find this prayer of Peter being a reality in his own life? The answer is yes and amen to the glory of God.
over the years, we find Peter's sufferings produced spiritual maturity. Peter's sufferings weaned him from the things of this life. Peter's suffering caused him to become more tender-hearted towards those who suffered. Peter's suffering caused him to know greater joy in the Lord. Now question, how did this come to be? I'll tell you, it came to be first and foremost only by the grace of God. But then closely connected with this, it came to be because Jesus Christ himself prayed this prayer for Peter. Peter was strengthened in his faith through sufferings because he was effectually called to a saving knowledge of Christ and Christ prayed this prayer for Peter on several occasions. Christ prayed this prayer for Peter before Peter denied Christ. Luke 22, verse 32. He tells us that he prayed for Peter's faith to remain strong. Christ prayed this prayer for Peter in John 17, the high priestly prayer. Jesus prayed that his disciples would be kept by the Father and sanctified through the truth of God's word. So stepping back and examining this prayer of Peter through his life, we see that Peter has come to the place where he can pray this prayer for others with authority knowing its true significance because God, by His grace, has answered such a prayer for him. So the only natural response to such a prayer is verse 11. And Peter then says to him, the God of all grace, the God of all comfort, the God of all peace, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And this is our third and final point of consideration. Examining this prayer of Peter's, we find first the essence of his prayer, second the example of his prayer, and then finally the exaltation of God's grace. What is our response to God's working in our life? What is our response to God saving us, God keeping us, God promising to work all for our spiritual good and His glory? In the light of God's electing and preserving grace, Peter is teaching us that it is only appropriate to praise God in the light of His kindness towards us. You see, this is the essence of the doxology in verse 11. The God who works in us and through us is the God who is worthy of praise. Despite what sufferings we may be dealing with, we can rejoice in the fact that one day, All that we know in this life will fade away. And our faith in the one who has suffered for us will become sight. So this is the final encouragement in his prayer. The final encouragement in his prayer is to adore the one who is with us and for us in the midst of our disappointments. Peter says to him be glory and dominion. Forever and ever, amen. So he begins by fixing their eyes on God, the God of all grace. And he ends their prayer for them with a doxology of praising the name of God. You see how God-focused our prayers ought to be for people? Who is God? He is the God of all grace. Oh, may they know 
that the God of all grace is with them in their sufferings. And may the God of all grace continue to sanctify them in the midst of their hardship. And may the God of all grace be praised because He is God and God alone. And this concluding portion of Peter's prayer is actually the application of how Jesus taught His people to pray in Matthew 6, 9-13. Jesus says, After this manner, therefore pray ye. There it is. Our Father. Focused where? On man's creature comforts? No. On the person of God. The God of all grace. Our Father. Who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. In earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Peter's prayer is fused with God. And I'm submitting to you that our prayers for others ought to be fused with God, them knowing God, them knowing God more intimately, God revealing Himself more and more to those who are suffering.